And that's where this picks up. So here we go. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth had heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has, commanded, has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, here's the song, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, he, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. This is God's word. Let's pray. Let's ask him to bless our time studying it together. Father, thank you for speaking to us the Christmas story and for putting, up, putting it in song. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to see what you want us to see from this text. Each of us comes this morning in different places, different experiences, different perceptions of what is happening in the world around them and different things that are happening in their own individual lives. We pray, Lord, that you would speak perfectly by the power of your Holy Spirit to each and every one of us here. Or we come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. So there it is, right? The very first Christmas song. Mary, just bursting out in verse because she's absolutely overwhelmed with what's happening. Right? Now, I don't know if there, was, there probably wasn't instrumental music behind it or whatever. Maybe it was just the first poetry slam. But this is a song. And this is music. It, this, is, this is an exclamation of overwhelming joy that is overflowing from Mary's life. Now, have you ever had that experience right, where excitement just, just overcomes you to the point where you just, you just can't help singing? It just, it, some, of it, some of us have had that. For others, that's a little bit foreign. But, but that idea, my kids, my kids we're getting, they're getting into the, the, the genre of the movie musical, right, which I love. It's, it's, a ton of, it's a ton of fun. Right? On the one hand, right, there is nothing. It's fun, but there's nothing that's actually more odd than the genre of the movie or the stage musical, when you think about it, right? I mean, it's very odd because, like, it, doesn't, it just doesn't happen that way in real life. There's nothing very realistic about it where you're just kind of going about your daily circumstances, having a conversation, and then suddenly you burst into a song and a pre-choreographed dance routine. It's just not normally how it works, right? Consider the, consider the, the movie classic uh, from, from Gene Kelly, Singing in the Rain. You ever seen Singing in the Rain? It's a, it's a classic. You remember the scene when the three main characters, so you have Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds and then, unfortunately, the other guy, but it's Donald O'Connor, right? So the three of them, and they spent, up, they spent all night, they've, they've been talking all night, they've been up all night, and suddenly they realize it's morning. Right? But instead of just kind of, you know, wishing each other good morning, they burst out into song. Good morning, right? Good morning. And then they begin to dance, and they're flipping over couches and all kinds of stuff. That doesn't happen in real life. 
This is not normal. Have you ever spent the night like with your crew and like you wake up in the morning and you're like, wow, it's morning. Let's do a dance routine. But actually, there's a scene later in the movie, the title scene, right? Which if you don't, if you've never seen the movie, you've probably seen, you've probably seen something of this, right? The title scene, Singing in the Rain. Now, this is much more realistic, actually, when you think about it, right? Because here you have, you have Gene Kelly, his character, Don Lockwood, and he's just dropped off Debbie Reynolds' character, Kathy, at her, at her place after, after a date. And they kiss on the steps, and the door closes behind Kathy, and, and Gene Kelly turns around, and he's just got the biggest smile all over his face, right? He's just absolutely, he's just, he's just overflowing, and he decides, despite the fact that it's raining, he waves the driver home. He says, leave, go ahead, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to walk in the pouring rain, right? And he dances and he sings all the way home. Now, what makes this actually much more realistic is the fact that everybody is looking at him like he's an absolute weirdo. Like, what is this guy doing? It's raining, he's singing, he's dancing. People don't do this, right? But that's actually, that's actually what, what makes it much more realistic. Do you feel that way about Christmas? I'm not talking about the, the generic gift-giving, holiday-shopping, cookie-baking Christmas. There's not anything wrong with that, but I'm talking about Christmas. Right? Do you just over, are you just overflowing with a feeling of, of love? Right? Like Gene Kelly. Like, like, a sh- like a champagne bottle that's been just shaken and just, just overflowing everywhere. Are you just so overwhelmed about Christmas, about what God has done, that there is the danger at any given moment that you might just burst out in song? Probably not. But that's our goal this Advent season in looking at these songs of Luke, to get you to that place, to sort of shake the champagne bottle, if you will. So we start, start the shaking with with Mary's song here. Now, just first, a few comments about the context sort of the lead-in narrative that you see in verses 39 to, to 45. First, I want, you to th- I want you to note the humanity of it all. This is an incredibly tender moment between two very unlikely mothers. That's the scene here. Right? Cousins who have absolutely no human reason to be in the position that they're in. Right? Elizabeth, on the one hand, is old, well along in years. <laughs> this is how Luke and her husband both very delicately put it. She's old. She's never been able to conceive before. She's got no children, and yet here she is, pregnant with the boy who would grow up to be John the Baptist, who would come in the spirit of the prophet Elijah, announcing the coming of the Messiah. That's on the one hand. Now, on the other hand, you have Mary. She's young, not married, and never been with a man, and yet here she is, pregnant with the boy who would grow up to be that Messiah. And the two of them get together, and they form this very unique club for expecting miraculous moms. Very exclusive. And I want you to see the significance that this must have had for, for Mary. The interaction with Elizabeth was the confirmation that she needed. Think about it. She's engaged, but she's not yet married. And she's pregnant. Now, she thinks she knows why, because the angel Gabriel came to her and told her no one else is probably going to believe her. And at her, mo- at her worst moments, you've got to think, like, there's got to be some doubt. Am I, like, really? Is this really happening to me? Because she's imagining the conversation that the women of the town will have, right, around the well. Did you hear about Mary? Yeah, and not even married. Joseph denies it, of course, but we know how these things happen, right? That's, that's how the conversation would have gone. She knows that's, that's, she knows that's how it would go. 
And even though God's going to handle the Joseph angle, he's going to fill him in about what's happening. So he's not going to be, he's not going to be an issue. He's going to believe her, but no one else certainly will, except Elizabeth, right? The angel told Mary about Elizabeth's situation. Elizabeth's going to believe her because the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone to do something miraculous is not at all going to be foreign to to Elizabeth. Now, it's not exactly the same situation, but she's going to get it. So, so, So the angel tells Mary about Elizabeth, and immediately that's where she goes because she had news that she had to share. She had things that she had to process, and Elizabeth was safe. This was a safe place for her to be able to go. But when she gets there, Mary can barely get the customary greeting out of her mouth, and Elizabeth beats her to the news. Imagine, right? I just want to tell someone, I'm so excited to tell you. And Elizabeth, I know, I know all about it. (laughs) Beat Beat her to the punch, right? But Elizabeth, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, says to Mary, I know what's happened. You've been blessed by God to be the mother of my Lord. And in that statement, verses 42 to to 45, Elizabeth's statement there, you have the very first truly Christian profession of faith. And by that I mean other people throughout throughout history, of course, had had professed faith in the God of, of Israel and in his promise to provide for their sin through a Messiah who would come. And prior to... Prior, prior to this time, that was what saving faith looked like for the people of God, right? But here you have, for the very first time, an explicit recognition of Jesus, of this historical person, to be that Messiah. And that's, a, that's what the Apostle Paul tells us. That's what, that's what, that's what a Christian profession looks like in, in Romans chapter, nine, verse, or chapter 10, verse 9. He says, it's necessary to be saved. What's necessary? To confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. This is the very first time that that's happened. So that's the context. Now, one other thing, just to kind of say, as we go into to look at this song, there are generally two dangers to avoid when it comes to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Two dangers. The first, which has historically been the mistake of, of some Protestants, is to make too little of Mary. Right? To mention her in the Christmas story, I mean, you kind of have to after all. Right? But to effectively silence her, right? so she sort of becomes like a mute piece in the nativity scene. She just sort of sits there and watches everything else that's going on. But Mary is not silent. She's singing. She's got something to say. And there's very much to commend to us about Mary herself and what we see and what she's saying. Right? For starters, this, woman, this young woman clearly knew her Bible. Philip, Philip Riken, in his, in his commentary, catalogs that in this short song, Mary references 11 different books of the Old Testament, either in direct quote or in allusion. Right? 11. Right? Shake this young woman's champagne bottle, and what comes out is the very Word of God. Right? And consider also how just absolutely beautifully and emotionally honest Mary is. She's excited. Look at, look, at, look at how she starts. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Right? Her soul glorifies. Her spirit rejoices. Now, don't be confused. She's not, she's not making a theological distinction between the soul and the, and the spirit as if they were two separate things. Right? This is parallelism. It's a, a common device in Semitic poetry. She repeats the sentiment of verse 6, again in verse 47, using a synonym to emphasize the point. And the point is that every single part of her being is praising God. Francis Schaeffer comments that, that he just loves how Mary praises God with such excitement here, but he also loves the fact that she doesn't just play off the, play it off like, like with some sort of stoic false humidity, humility. That's nothing. It's nothing. 
It's not. It's not nothing. It's something very big, and she's excited about it. Right? So that's one thing. We can't be careful to, make, to, to not make too little of Mary. Now, of course, on the other hand, there is the point of what she's getting excited about. And here we need to be careful of the, the other danger, and that's thinking too much of Mary, or probably more accurately stated, thinking, not thinking wrongly of Mary. Now, this, of course, has been, the, been some of the historic teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, which holds as, as an official, as official dogma that Mary herself was born sinless. That's what's referred to as the Immaculate Conception. Sometimes people think that the, immaculate, the, the term Immaculate Conception refers to the conception of Jesus. It doesn't. In Catholic doctrine, it actually refers to Mary. And in its most extreme forms, it actually leads many people wrongly to view Mary as sort of a co-redemptress of, of sorts, acting alongside Jesus in the redemption of, of sinful humanity. Now, without going far off track, the reason why I raise the issue at all is because based on this song, I think it actually would make Mary very sad to see the very basis of her excitement completely undercut. Mary isn't over, overflowing with praise because she's without sin. No, her spirit, she says, is rejoicing, verse 47, in God my Savior. Right? Mary needs a Savior too, and that's at the core of what has her excited about what is about to occur and what is happening. Right? Because Mary's song is not, at the end of the day, about Mary at all. It's about God. All you have to do is read it, to, and there's no mistaking who Mary is singing about. She's setting the precedent at the very beginning of Christmas music, <laughs> the whole opening of the genre, that the very best of Christmas songs will always make much of God. So that's what, that's what we should do before we're done. We should look to see what Mary thinks is so important for us to understand uh, about God at Christmas. And I'll break it up like this. Three things, three things from the song that we learn about God. First, we learn that God is both holy and merciful. He's holy and merciful. Second, we learn that he humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. And third, we learn that he keeps his promises. Right? So God is, God is both holy and merciful. He humbles the proud and exalts the humble, and he keeps his promises. I know it doesn't rhyme, there's no alliteration, but that's the way it is. Right? First, he's both holy and merciful. She calls God the mighty one, the doer of great things, and his name, she says, is holy. Now, it doesn't actually just mean that he has a holy name, as if the actual word of his name, whether it's Jehovah or whatever, it, the word itself as a word is simply holy. When we talk about God's name, what we're talking about, when she means that by that, is, is the entirety of who God is, the entirety of his of his being. See, names are, names are significant, particularly in the Old Testament. They were very significant because they describe one's character. You might remember in Moses, uh, remember Moses in Exodus chapter 3, right? He, he's, God has come to him and says, I'm going to use you to bring my people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt and deliver them. And you're going to go to the Israelites and tell them that. And Moses says, well, who should I tell him is sending me? And God says, you tell him I am sent you. I am who I am. Now, that's kind of an odd-sounding name, isn't it, to, to kind of say? And what, 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 what God is saying, what he's saying in, in, in calling himself I am, is that he is the infinite, eternal, self-sufficient God. That he is God in every aspect of his being. Right? That's why the third commandment, not to take the Lord's name in vain, that's why it's so much more than just what word you should use. Would be, is this considered a curse word or not? 
Should I use OMG in a text or not? Like, it's, it's so much more than that. Now, it's not less than that. I don't, don't mishear it. It's, it's not less than the words we use, but, it's, but the concept is so much more broad than, than that. Right? What, is it, what, it, what does it actually mean? Is, is it raises the standard higher. Because whether it's in the words you use or, the, or, or the, the respect you show to God's standards or the way that you treat other people, the question to ask yourself is this. In whatever you're doing, am I exalting in what I'm saying and what I'm doing and what I'm texting? Right? Am I exalting or am I diminishing the holy name of God? Because at the root of the commandment is the warning not to take in any way, words, actions, or otherwise, not to take lightly the perfection and the majesty and the power of God. God is holy, and we should feel the weight of that. Mary wants us to know that. He's the holy God. But he's also merciful, right? In, in literally her very next breath, right, the end of verse 49 says, holy is his name, then verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him. Right? Now, mercy, what is mercy? Mercy is the willingness of one who is in authority, to set aside the right to exact restitution for a wrong that has been committed. Right? Do you get that? It's the willingness to set aside the right to punish. One, in, one who is in authority has the right to punish, and yet they are willing and they are able to set aside their right to punish so that, so that punishment does not happen. Right? And this, too, is inherent in the character of God. Going back to Exodus again. Now, this time, after God has brought his people out of Israel. It's in Exodus 32, 33, 34, and the people have rebelled against God. And Moses pleads with God on their behalf, and he, he pleads to God on the basis of his character, on the basis that he is a merciful God. And God himself describes himself, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, describes himself saying that he is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness and sin. Now, this, of course, raises a very classic tension. Right? How can a perfectly just and holy God just set aside justice in order to let the guilty go unpunished? Right? Because it seems as if the characteristic of mercy would sort of negate the characteristic of holiness. You can't have both at the same time because a God who just sort of overlooks justice just says, that, don't worry about it, is actually not perfect. He's not holy. He's, he's not just. He can't be both at the same time. And it isn't actually until the cross and the crucifixion that the tension is ultimately resolved. Because the apparent dilemma, the answer to the apparent dilemma is that God doesn't, in his mercy, actually overlook justice. Right? The, the, the dilemma is resolved on the cross where mercy is guaranteed to us, not because justice is overlooked, but because justice in Jesus is satisfied for us on our behalf. But for now, for now, that's not really what, what the focus is. For now, it's amazing, for, uh, amazing enough for us to note that Mary seems to have no problem asserting both of these characteristics of God side by side as she contemplates the miracle that this is happening to her. And she seems to know at some level that the miracle of the incarnation is that God's entry into the world as a human being will somehow bring together these two strands and ultimately resolve the tension. So, first thing, from Mary's song, what do we learn about God? We learn that he is both holy and he is merciful. Now, second thing we learn is that he humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. 
Now, Mary, Mary first recognizes this point in her own personal situation. She just looks at herself. She doesn't have to look any farther at all. And she says, oh, my Lord, I am your humble servant. And she really means that. She, you know, she, 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 she's coming to him and she says, you know, you have been mindful of the, of the humble state of your servant. That's not just a false humility. Oh, I am your humble servant. She really means it. Right? She, she, she knows. She's among the lower class. <laughs> Jesus has come from, from royal lineage, from the line of David. Both Luke and Matthew and their genealogies will, will make that clear. But at this point in history, all of that is obscured. All of that is forgotten. Right? Joseph, Mar- Joseph and Mary, they're not getting any royalty checks from Solomon's secret trust fund that was like transferred to a Swiss bank or something before the fall of Jerusalem, right? There's nothing. There's nothing coming. They don't have any inheritance, right? Jesus is going to be born into a family of the working poor. So certainly, Mary sees God's work in exalting the humble in her very own life. But then she takes that principle and she expands it beyond herself and makes it much more universal. Just read again with me, verses 51 to 53. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Now here what you see is a much broader statement about God and how he regularly uses the unexpected to accomplish his great work. And he intentionally chooses to use those who, in their own estimation, don't think that they deserve to be used and intentionally does not choose to use those who, in their, estimation, their own estimation, thinks that they ought to be. And this, this statement isn't at all unique to Mary. I mean, it actually prefigures, in a way, some of what Jesus will end up teaching himself. Right? For example, the, the, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And it's woven throughout the history of the, of the Bible. We don't have time to go, to go through it, but all you have to pick up almost any, any place in the Old Testament and you scratch your head and wonder, why this guy? Right? Why, why Jacob? Why Noah? Why Moses? Why David? And you can ask that question over and over again because in the world's estimation, none of those people deserved to be, to be used, and yet they were. They were. God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. Now, let me just quickly apply this in light of Christmas. Apply this, 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 this concept, this encouragement to be humble in two different directions, two different kind of sets of, of, of audiences. First, let me talk to the self-identified Christian. Right? To those who would look at, at what Mary's saying here, I believe this. I believe this. I believe what Mary is, is singing, what she's celebrating. This is what I believe. I believe it happened exactly, exactly as it is here. Right, let, me, let me talk to you first. Be very careful when you look at other people this Christmas, other people who, completely are, who are completely missing everything we're talking about here. Right, people, people who claim to celebrate Christmas, but they don't, understand, they don't understand the first thing about the significance of what Mary's saying here. They don't believe it. Right? This is, this is my, when, when you, be very careful when you encounter people like that. Be very careful lest you think that the reason that you do understand these things is because you're somehow better than they are. You're somehow smarter because you're not. You're not. It's a very busy time of year. So let me just suggest that with your limited resources of time, that you skip all the critical, sarcastic Facebook posts about people who don't use the correct holiday greeting, right? people who prefer white Christmas instead of joy to the world, 
people who should be in church rather than at the drunken office party. Just skip it. Skip it entirely. And, and instead, with all the extra time that you've now gained, use that time repenting and worshiping and joyfully considering how God could be so merciful as to reveal the truth of Christmas to a people as self-righteous as us. Now, in the other direction, we talk to the person who wouldn't identify themselves as a Christian. Right? Someone who, at least not in the sense that, they, that you would believe any of the things described here in Luke 1 as actually really happening. Right? Someone who would say, do you believe, I mean, this is, this is the criteria, this is how you judge do you think that the idea of a poor, unmarried virgin teenager giving birth to the human incarnation of the eternal God who created the heavens and the earth couldn't possibly be true? Right? This is a silly fiction at best, or, or, or an outright lie at worst. Right? Do you think that? Maybe, maybe you do. Right? Then what I would ask you to consider is whether God might have chosen to save humanity from all that ails it in this way, because it would seem impossible to everyone who is more inclined to trust in themselves and their own reason than to trust in him, that he might actually have done it intentionally. The Apostle Paul, the beginning of his letter to, first Corinthians, to, the, to the Corinthians, his first letter, he writes in chapter 1, he says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. In other words, if your first instinct to, your first instinct to marry situation is to think that it couldn't possibly have happened this way, right? then my encouragement is have a little bit of humility because from a biblical standpoint, God choosing to save humanity by becoming a baby born to a poor, unwed mother, while certainly not the way that you might have chosen to, to do it, that actually fits fairly consistently, much more consistently with the way that God usually seems to operate in just about everything else. Francis Schaeffer, uh, you heard me quote him before, says at this point, it is perfectly right to think that what is happening here to Mary is unique. It is. It's absolutely unique. In other words, unique Right? It's something that has never happened before and something that will never happen again. It is. It's absolutely unique what's happening to Mary here. But he says that it's stupid. That's his word, stupid. Stupid to say that you, that you don't believe that a thing could be true simply because that thing is unique. In fact, he says, given the mission that was assigned to Jesus, right, the, the message announced to Joseph and Mary that his name would be Jesus was why? So that he could save his people from their sins. If that was his mission, and this was in fact the God of all the universe coming into this world as a person, then you would kind of expect if something like that were happening for a mission like that, that even if you wouldn't have designed how it would be, you would expect absolutely that something like that happening would be unique. So we see that God is holy and merciful. We see that he exalts the humble and humbles the proud. Alas, we see that he he keeps his promises. Look at the last two verses that, that Mary sings. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Now, why does Mary bring Abraham into this? What's he got to do with it? Does this seem random? It's not random at all. Not random at all. Remember where Mary is, right? Where's she hanging out? She's hanging out at the Miraculous Moms Club. 
right? And, and, and this would have made total sense to Elizabeth, Abraham's situation, right? Because they, that they would have been sitting around thinking about God's mercy and God's promise to Abraham. Because God had promised a child to Abraham and to his old infertile wife, Sarah, a child from whom he promised he would form a great nation that would become the nation of Israel and from whose descendants would come the Messiah who would bless all the nations of the earth. And God was merciful to Abraham, just as Mary sings. Because Abraham didn't believe that. He doubted God, didn't think that God could do that. Thought it was impossible. But it's not impossible. Not impossible for God. That's what, that's what the angel told Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. God can do it. And that's what he told Abraham. Turn back, to, it's Genesis 15. Turn back to Genesis 15 for a second. Genesis 15. Genesis 15, 4. In the midst of Abraham's doubt. He doesn't think that God can do this. He's trying to figure out ways that he can, he can do it himself. Maybe there's a way that I can get a child that doesn't happen through Sarah. Maybe we, can, maybe we can work things out differently. I don't believe it. In the midst of all that, in the midst of his doubt, in the midst of his worry, God says he doesn't need to worry about it. He says, he says that a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And then, verse 5, he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then, right after that, look at what it says. Abram, that was his name before God changed it to Abraham. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That's how, this faith that Abraham had, that is how Abraham received his right standing before God. That's how he was saved. By looking forward to the Messiah who was to come and believing in faith that God would do what he promised. And every faithful follower of God from that point forward, was saved in exactly the same way. Until, until this moment here, this moment here in Luke chapter 1, when you have Mary and Elizabeth looking at the Messiah and saying, I now know who it is. I now know. It's no longer a promise for the future. He is here. And so they put their faith in the, in the historical person of Jesus. Now, two applications here. Right, first, do you believe that? Do you believe this Jesus to be the Lord and Savior that Mary claims him to, to be? Right, consider what, what is at stake, what's happening here in the incarnation. David Platt is the president of the International Mission Board for the Southern Baptist Convention, and he tells a story in one of his books about a time when he was visiting a particularly dangerous part of war-torn Sudan. And he was there, and he was talking to this Sudanese Christian that he met. His name was Andrew. And Andrew was sharing about his life in Sudan and the struggles and the, and the suffering that he had experienced. And he was, he was recounting with gratitude all of the aid, all of the supplies, all of the things that had been sent to him and to the, the people in his, in his village. He was saying it with, with absolute gratitude. But then he looked at David, and he said, even in light of all these things that people have given us, he said, do you know how you can tell who a true brother is? He said, a true brother comes to be with you in your time of need. And he looked at David in the eye and said, David, you are a true brother because in our time of need, you have come to be with us. You see, that's the message of Christmas. 
God not only sends the solution to fulfill his promise, he sends himself in the person of Jesus to be with us. That's a claim worth believing. And if you really believe it, it's a claim worth singing about. Now, secondly, and let's be just totally practical here. What kind of situation are you facing right now? What kind of struggle? What in, what in your life is, is causing you to be, to be anxious? It, if, if that's the case, it's certainly possible to look at Mary's song here and find inspiration in it. Find a model to emulate. It's very inspiring. You look at Mary, and this is what you can do. You say, so look, I see Mary. Mary was in an anxious situation, right? Unwed, unwed pregnant girls, they get stoned, or at the very least, they get talked about and they get shunned, right? But what does Mary do? Let me find a model in what Mary's doing. Well, she doesn't focus on the negativity, does her? Does she? She doesn't focus on what others might say. She finds a safe place in community with someone that, that she trusts, who shares her faith, and she rejoices in the holiness and the mercy and the grace of God. And that's good. That's all, that's all good. That is, in fact, a very good model. But if you stop there, you've completely, you, you're completely missing something else that is extremely practical to consider. Consider the promise that God made to Abraham and how for about 2,000 years, God asked his people to simply trust him that he was going to keep it. Right? Through all kinds of situations where the people of Israel had every right to doubt, is this ever really going to happen? Particularly at this moment in history, it had been 400 years about since the last prophet had even spoken. Right? Every reason to say, is God really going to keep that promise? 2,000 years, they were simply asked, to trust that God was going to keep his promise to send a Messiah. And then, at this moment, using this young woman, young woman, he did. Consider that. And then consider whether the God who kept this promise by sending his son to be with you and ultimately to die for you has thus proven himself sufficiently able to be trusted that he will keep the promises that he has made to us in the pages of Scripture, many of them now 2,000 years old. Right? Whether he is able to keep his promise to be with us to the very end of the age. Keep his promise to, to carry on the good work that he began in us to completion until the day when Christ returns. Whether when he returns, he is able to keep his promise to wipe every tear from your eyes and to bring you into a place where God will be eternally with you in a way that the incarnation of Jesus only hinted at a place where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Does that shake your champagne bottle? Right? Does it make you want to sing? Should. Keith Getty, the singer and the songwriter whose songs we often sing, In Christ Alone is probably his most famous song. He has a passion for seeing the 21st century people of God sing boldly in worship not just to be spectators of it, but to be participants in it, to sing boldly. And he isn't talking about the quality of your voice, which is good news for me. Because what he says is, he says, it, while not all of us, not all of us have a, a voice, he, 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 know, he knows this, not all of us have a voice that meet a professional standard. But he says, each and every Christian has been given and is commanded to use a voice that most definitely meets a confessional standard. Not every voice meets a professional standard, but every single voice of the Christian meets, by virtue of what Jesus has done for them, a confessional standard. In other words, the ability 
to sing of the God who has been mindful of us in our helpless estate, whose mercies extend to those who fear him, and who keeps the promises that he has made to the descendants of Abraham forever. So let's pray, and then let's sing. Father, you have given us a song to sing that we don't deserve to sing. And it is a song of good news of great joy. That you would stoop down and come to be among us, not just to live with us, but to die for us. And so, Lord, we pray that like Mary, we might rejoice in you, our God, and our Savior. God, I pray that for each and every person here as we sort of begin this season of Advent, that you would help us to understand better what this Christmas story is all about. And that, Lord, as we understand, we might overflow into the lives of those around us, lives of those who may need to be encouraged, lives of those who may not know of this story. Overflow into their lives the good news of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.